Thank you. Hi, it's great to be with you today. We've had a great day so far. Um, myself, the team, just being here with this great church. Um, thank you to Pastors Colin and, and Bruce for inviting us. Um, <clears throat> this church is so cross-cultural. It's, uh, it's a global church. There's people from every and any country, and it's, it's wonderful to be with you, worshipping God um, in that way. Um, as Pastor Bruce just mentioned, we've been sharing many different stories and uh, different aspects uh, of what Elam Missions is involved in, and I'm going to do a little bit about that as well, but I also want to stir your heart uh, in this service to think about overseas work and to think about God who is still calling his church to go. We have 85 long-term missionaries who are serving overseas for more than one year. They're in 43 different countries, uh, in 43 different placements in 31 countries. And on top of that, we are working um, with Elam Global member denominations in 49 different countries, and that's where we send our short-term teams to. We, as Elam International Missions, we are Pentecostal. Well, that's five Pentecostals here this afternoon. Let me, I know we didn't rehearse that, so I'll just, should we just try that one again? Elim International Missions, we are Pentecostal. Yeah? Okay. And our verse is, is this verse here. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the reason why I, I, I make a big deal of that and the reason why that's one of our, the pillars um, of our vision and all that we do is that most of our missionaries work within a missionary community where there's a lot of missionaries who, who actually believe that the acts of the Holy Spirit are not today. And uh, they're, they're cessationists. They, they, they don't think that God moves like that anymore. So much work is done overseas under the term missionary. It means a multitude of dif different things. So, so much good work is done. However, the work of the Holy Spirit is the only work that can transform an individual's life. And our missionaries and the organizations that we work with are Pentecostal. We believe in the baptism of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit for mission. That's our verse. We believe that when Jesus said, you'll, you'll receive power from on high, we believe it was all connected to missions. We believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit produces one thing, power to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Now, as Pentecostals, this is our verse. It belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the Baptists. It's our verse, you know. Well, I mean, let's just read it together, shall we? You'll receive... Are you Pentecostal here? I'm not, I'm not sure you are. Let's just do one, two, one, two, three... Yeah, what, that's what just happened there is what usually happens. We kind of like tail away towards the end. We're, but we're very, very good at the first bit because we love the power, don't we? You, I mean, some of you actually, 
you lifted the, the tone. You lifted the whole volume on that word power. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We, we, we know this. We, lo- we love that. We chase after that. The Western church, oh gosh, we love the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was not saying two things. He was not saying there's the power of the Holy Spirit and there's also uh, the fact that you'll be witnessing um, in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He said one thing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they'll receive power to go on missions. Starting in your home place, Jerusalem, to the very ends of the earth. That's what happened to the apostles and the church. They witnessed and they laid their lives down to the ends of the earth. Starting in Jerusalem, going right through. Legend says Thomas died in, he laid his life down in India. They, that's what they did. They, they witnessed and laid their lives down. Today, more than at any other time in history, Christians are laying their lives down for the gospel witness. More than 200 million in over 60 countries face violent persecution or detention because of their identity as Christian. How many Christians are martyred every year? Sadly, most martyrs suffer and die anonymously, unknown, forgotten. Their deaths are unrecorded except in heaven. What we do know is that there were more Christians killed in Syria in 2013 than globally the whole total of Christians killed in the year before. We know it's escalating week in, week out. We're in unprecedented times. We, we all know the stories that are coming out because of social media. Every one of us here this afternoon will have read a story, seen something, seen something graphic, seen, seen some things that you wish you'd never seen. How do Christians go through what they are going through? How do our brothers and sisters face the things that they are facing today? How do they lay their life down and continue to be a witness to the love of God through Jesus Christ? This is how they do it. It's this verse. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. One day, we'll be with these people in heaven and they'll come to us and they'll say, oh, wow, gosh, you made it as well, eh? That was just, that was a tough call down there. Uh, how was it for you? How, how did you lay your life down? How, how was it, how was the surrender of your life? Because we needed the power of the Spirit for, for what we had to go through. See, we, we will all die but how we die is determined by how we're living. The church in the West, we want to live. But God wants the church to die, to surrender, to submit, until they lay its life down through the power of the Spirit. People have gone before us. Maria Skopsova began her early life as an atheist and then she became a Catholic and then she threw a fresh look at the humanity of Christ, became a Christian. 
And her and her father helped many Jews escape the occupation. And then on Easter Day 1945, one day before the Red Cross liberated the camp, she took the place of another Jewish woman who was going to the gas chamber. And Maria said these words. As she went, she said, Lord, I am your messenger. Throw me like a blazing torch into the night. Richard Wormbrand, 14 years in a communist Romanian prison, said this. A man rarely believes what he recites in a creed, but only the things he is ready to die for. So come to Jesus and he's going to fix all your problems. It's lightweight. It's, it's certainly not the global message of Christians today. But Christianity, it's a cause. It's a purpose. It needs devotion, focused, disciplined Christians. And yet there's a strange anomaly today. No one would doubt the pouring out of the Holy Spirit over the last 30 years upon the Western world. We've enjoyed the river of God. We've enjoyed, I, I was a pastor before, I was a missions director, I was a pastor for 20 years, and my church was so desperate, they'd send me everywhere, oh pastor, go there, you'll get something, bring it back. I've gone up a mountain, down a mountain, in a river, out of a river, I've gone everywhere. I've caught fire, I've had water on me, Every, I was being so desperate. We've done all of that for 30 years. But the anomaly is this. Let me show you this. There's 16,804 people groups in the world. 7,289 are unreached or least reached. Of foreign mission funding, 87% goes for work among those already Christian. 12% for work among already evangelized but non-Christian. And only 1% for work among the unevangelized and unreached people. Let me give you something else. Over 90% of foreign missionaries are going to countries where 60% or more of their people identify themselves as Christians. And yet today alone, this day alone, 70,000 people will die in the unreached world without Jesus. And that doesn't make sense. The river of God has come. The Holy Spirit has poured out amongst us. He is here and it's wonderful but the statistics do not make for good reading. And they're still there. Unless the story of Gideon, perhaps, is the story of today's church. You know when Gideon was establishing an army? And, and, and God said to Gideon, um, we haven't got this right. I need a filter something here. So I want you to take your 10,000 men down to the river. And I want you to watch what they do. And we're going to filter something. So Gideon took 10,000 men down to the river. And 9,700 men just dived into the river like, like a dog drinking the water. And they looked in the mirror and they saw themselves and they got enamored by what they saw. And they took the eye off mission and their purpose. 
And God said, that's who I'm going to filter out. 300 men got down on their knees and with one eye still on the purpose of their life, with one eye still on the enemy, one eye still on mission, they lapped with their hand. And God said, that's what it's all about. That's what the river was for. And I wonder if something there that we can learn, the river, a testing ground for God's people, are they going to drink from the river selfishly? Oh, look at me. Just a little bit more, Lord. Just me. It's all about me, Jesus. Or will we go to the river and say, God, let your Holy Spirit come upon me because I want power to go. So fill me and I want power to reach the lost. I want to go to the ends of the earth for you. Are you with me? What's our purpose? It always has been going to all the world. Elim International Missions, we raise, we send, we support foreign and national missionaries to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. God has always been saying go, hasn't he? To Abraham, go to the land I will show you. To Moses, go to the spacious land. To Paul, go to the Gentiles. To his son, go into the world. To you, to me, go. Between the resurrection and the ascension, there's 40 days. And there's one thing on the mind of Jesus is absolutely clear, and it's, it's the go. It's what was so important to him. It's what he spoke about the most. In fact, all the gospel writers say the same thing. I've just quoted Mark says, go into all the world, preach. Luke says, stay in, in the city until you've received power from on high. He then writes, in Acts, we've just had it. And when the power on high comes, then you go to the ends of the earth. John says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Matthew says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, etc. The message is absolutely clear, isn't it? You can't, you can't get away from it that what Jesus was thinking about the most Approaching his ascension is for the apostles and for the church to come to, to be a, a, an army of people who go. That message was given AD, AD 30, perhaps around that time. Five years later, the go had still not happened. Five years later, they're still having meetings in Jerusalem, having a good time bit of a revival going on, people getting saved. But what Jesus said five years previously still hadn't taken place. Though that's surprising, I find it quite encouraging, because maybe you can sit this afternoon and say, well, actually, I remember a time when God told me to go around to my neighbor, and actually, I'm still waiting to go around, or asked me to pick up the phone and speak to some. I've not done that yet. Well, be encouraged. Five years. 
We're still in Jerusalem. We've not gone even into Judea, Samaria, and the earth yet. But when God wants you to do something, when it's on the heart of God, and I think, you know, when we, when we die and get to heaven, there's one thing that, you know, we may want to say a lot of things to Jesus. There's one thing he's going to talk to us about, and that is, did, did you do it? Did you go? It was the last thing I told you to do. Did, did you do it? But because it's the heart of God, God will get his way. It's so important to God to move the church out. It's so important to, because he loves the world, every culture. It's such his heart that he will allow bad things to happen. He doesn't do bad things, but he'll, in his sovereignty, will allow them to take place. And so Luke writes in Acts chapter 8 of a great persecution that took place on the day that Stephen was martyred. Stephen, the loved deacon. Everybody loved Stephen. God, take, every, take somebody else. Not, don't touch our heart. But when Stephen was martyred, the heart of the church was ripped open. God, what's that? Why would you, why would you do that? And on that day, great persecution broke out and the church went north, south, east, west. They just went, they scattered. And as they scattered, as the, the believers scattered, they, they took the good news of Jesus Christ that he, he went to the cross and three days later rose again for every person that we come into contact with. Um, problem was, was that <laughs> Luke writes a really strange thing. He writes, all except the apostles were scattered and took the gospel with them. All except the apostles. Now Jesus, who did he, who did he give this great commission to? It was the apostles. And after five years, Stephen's taken, great persecution breaks out, and still the apostles are still sitting there. Interesting. In fact, some think, that the gospel would reach Britain two years before the apostles decided to go. Fourteen years after Jesus said, go, fourteen years, did they decide to go? Did they decide to go on missions? And they went because of a few reasons. They went because of transformational stories especially of Saul converted to Paul. That transformational story did a lot for them. The power of testimony. May, may we all continue to believe in the power of our testimony. It was Paul's ability to, to dialogue and, and, and to engage and to debate over the doctrines that caused them to go. And it was Paul's fearlessness. And, and what is going to move the UK church to take seriously the ends of the earth, which throughout the Bible, the ends of the earth has been God's heart from the, from the day one right through to the end, What's it going to take to get the UK church to, to take that seriously? It's the same thing. A renewed love for the power of testimony that people 
are being changed, transformed, but there's more people out there who need to know about Jesus. The learned ability and, and a willingness to dialogue with people, even of different cultures. To be able to present our doctrines clearly, and especially the doctrine of the Trinity is so important today. And this fearlessness that only comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a continually filling of the Holy Spirit. There's one other thing that caused the apostles to move and the church was eventually mobilized. And that was definitely the breaking down of prejudices. And it was around Peter's vision and Christ speaking to him, do not call anything impure what God has made clean. You know, and you know the story how he saw an Italian family, Cornelius, just come to the Lord, the whole household, baptized the Spirit, the power of the Spirit upon their lives. There's no room. There's no room within missions for prejudice. Prejudice is the dividing wall for missions. Now, I'm in a church, I'm in a holy church. You all look at very, very holy. Well, these ones down here do. <coughs> and you, pro you know, you probably think, you look at the person next to you and they're looking they look really sweet. They don't look prejudiced. And, and, and in a church, we go, oh, I'm not prejudiced. I remember the I remember a few years ago, I didn't think I was prejudiced until then the Holy Spirit showed me that I was. Let me explain. I was, going, I was in Kenya, and if anybody's been to Maasai land, you, you know what I mean. And I was with a pastor, and he said, let's do some door-to-door -door evangelism. Well, I, I'm, I really don't like door-to-door -door evangelism because I'm a bit afraid of dogs. I'm not sure about you, you know. Like, that's why I was never called to be a postman. But um, they were doing door-to-door -door evangelism. If you've ever been to Maasai land, door-to-door evangelism is like there's a hut here. And then, like, for about 10 kilometers, you might see the next-door neighbor. You know, it's way over there. So I went with him, and we went to this hut. We drove for a long way, and then we went to this hut out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there was just nothing around at all. No corner shop. And so I go to the hut. And the man comes out with his four wives. And he says, I'm a Christian. Well, you know, I'm with you, exactly. Except I wasn't laughing. I was a bit, well, you can't call yourself a Christian. Four wives. I'm married. I'm married. I'm married to a woman. You have to say that these days, don't you? Married to a woman. She's there, 27 years. She hasn't got the opportunity to tell you today, but she's very happy. <clears throat> and you can tell she's blessed. He comes out with his four wives. He says, I'm a Christian. I go, no, you're not. I said, God, thank you. I'm your man. Thank you for bringing me here. Just give me the green light, and I'm in there like a shot, because I'm going to get this guy calling himself a Christian with four I mean, for one thing, you know what's wrong about having four wives? Shall I tell you? It's very deep. 
It's mother-in-laws, isn't it? I mean, yeah? I mean, one mother-in-law is enough for any man, isn't it? Is that right? Would you men agree with me? Yeah? <clears throat> and he's standing there with his foot. He invites us into, the, into, his, into his home. So I go into his home, a little bit reluctantly, but I'm waiting to give him some proper teaching. And you, those from Africa, you know this is a big problem over there. And uh, over in your nation, you know it's a big problem. So I mean, I'm in there, and uh, he, he asked his first wife to, um, to pray. She prays. Now, I've just told you I've been all over the... Um, the cathedrals of Christendom for uh, a touch from God in my life. Yeah, I've been, I've been to the, to the centres, you know, and I, I've, I've shaked, rattled and rolled with the best of them, you know. So I, at that time, I know the presence of God. I can, I can work out where God is and where he's not. Clearly, he's not here. He's got four, got four wives. So he asked the first wife to pray. And though I didn't understand the prayer, you know, obviously, Swahili, I, I, I thought, oh, it sounds all right. And I can't... I resisted it, but it, I felt, I felt, no, no, it's not the Holy Spirit, but there's something. The, then the second wife, he said, sing a song. So she sang a song. Well, I thought, my words. No, you can't be here. You're not here, four wives. You can't be here. But I'm just feeling it's like, like the, just the same kind of feeling I was, I've been having in some of these other places in the Western world. And the third wife, she she read Psalm 23, and the fourth wife, she sang a final song. By the end of the fourth song, I knew I was in the presence of God, but my head and my heart was all over the place. I knew I was in the presence, but I can't be in the presence of God. But I'm in the presence. No, I can't be. So there's all that going on, like there was some problems with me mentally. And afterwards, you know, I, was, I said, can, can you explain? What, what's the situation here? And that's when I became undone. And I realized that I'd prejudged this situation. Two years previously, a traveling evangelist had come by. There's no church in that particular area of Maasai land. It's just him and his four wives. And the traveling evangelist comes by. He leads them all to Christ two years previously. He gives them a Bible, he teaches them two songs, and he shows them how to pray. And for two whole years, and he's not seen anybody in that whole two years, we are the people for the first time since the evangelist. And I thought, my words, how I prejudged this man. There is no room in missions for you and I to prejudge somebody else's story to say I know where God is and what God would do and to try and summarize into headlines a person's life we need to allow them to communicate their whole life to us before we make any such summary there's no room it's a dividing wall that needs to come down our missionaries learn the language, and just as Jesus was incarnated into the world, our missionaries saw uh, within their cultures that they live in, whether they are there for medical reasons, education, or engineering, uh, whatever's on their visa, the primary reason why they're there is to, to tell people about Jesus and to communicate the love of God, to tell the good news. 
Now, there are places in the world where foreign, it would be stupid to send foreign missionaries into those places, particularly these days in the Middle East. And we're, we're seeking to raise up national missionaries. In fact, our greatest church planters uh, in, in numbers and, and uh, movement is um, national missionaries. But we support and we promote these church planting movements, models. We are seeking to see many churches built. um, And we particularly are seeking to stand with the suffering church. Last year, um, in memory of our 13 Elam missionaries that were martyred in 1978, in the month of June, we put a call out to the Elam churches and it was our our first year to do this as a team. We've only been together in this particular team for a short while and we put a call out and over 32,000 was given to church planting. All that we do, all that we do is for the development of churches and the planting of new ones. But we want to be part of movements and develop models. We're not interested in The whole point is not to have the the flag of Elam UK scattered around the world. The name Elam doesn't mean anything. We want to be influenced. Some at times we'll we'll do that, but it's not the primary thing. It's not our focus. Our focus is shifting from the notion of churches with facilities and programs and buildings and the need to sustain them to that actually of creating and being part of movements of disciple-makers. Trudsdale, in his book, Missionary Movements, has the results of a study, an interesting study, of 6,000 churches with Muslim converts in 18 uh, countries in 70 different people groups. And churches done this way. Well, the average church size is just over 31 Christians per church. They all participate in regular discipleship-making Bible studies. The leader is receiving training, but is self-sustained financially. This training is done on the ground by visitations from a mentor, a coach. Sometimes, because of the dangerous place, the training is done by mobile phone. The church's weekly prayer and fasting times. The tithes are spent on meeting the needs of the church and acts of kindness and also sending out for further missions work. Inexpensive structures are built only after the percentage of Christians has increased considerably in a community so as to give better protection from persecution. We have much to learn and we are on a learning track. Mission is who you and I are. It's who we, it's our identity. We are the body of Christ, the church. He is sent and so are we. And church becomes really weird when it loses mission. When it, when it starts to lose its identity and it all focuses in on itself, that's when all kinds of problems occur. And the church in the UK that divides and splits and, and decreases in size is the church that has stopped opening the doors for mission because it's our identity. Come with me for a moment. 
you've followed Jesus for a couple of days over the hills and terrain, and you arrive at a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was a location famous for its pagan rituals and sacrifices. The ancient name was Panius, named after Pan, god of the mountains and forests. This was a great pilgrimage place. If you worshipped a, a god, goddess, idol, you would find it in this place. Jesus leads his disciples through this place, and they know exactly where they're going. They know Caesarea Philippi is famous for gods and goddesses. They know this, this, this place, false worship. That's where we are. And it was in this place that Jesus said, who, who, do, you, who do people say I am? And Peter has this... Uh, Divine revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, this has come from heaven. And Simon, you, I'm just going to remind you, your name is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And over the generations and still today, the Catholics all believe that um, Peter is the rock, he's, he's the founder of the church, he's, he's the first bishop, it's, he's a father. The Protestants say, no, it's not. Well, yeah, Peter was leader of the church. Yeah, Peter was there at the beginning. But it's not what you're saying it is. It's, it's Peter's confession. And you know, you've got to confess with your mouth, you know, Jesus is Lord, and you've, you've got to recognize uh, who he is, and, and then you're saved. You know? and, and I think Peter was the, one of the, he was one of, I don't even think, I know, he was one of the leaders, the first leaders of the church. And I also believe that we have to have revelation, we have to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. I, I believe that as well. So don't write in. But I'm just wondering if, there's a reason why Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Well, why does this all happen here? And then, um, when you look at that town, and you don't have to do too much searching or researching, to find that actually there, and you can still see it today, um, that there is a, a hundred foot cliff face and there are, um, inserted into the cliff face, there are crevices and there's areas where shrines were and people would come and they'd put their little statue here. In fact, that whole cliff face was just littered with every god and goddess you could ever think about. It's all there. And people would travel for miles just to come and worship their particular god, goddess has a name. It's called Rock of Gods. And at the bottom, at the bottom of the, the cliff face is a, it's, there's a river. And, and folklore was, folklore believed that 
the, the demon god, Baal, would, would come in and out of, of that cave. There's a cave underneath where the, the river was. Nobody went, went in there. There was tremendous fear about Baal, the demon god. He was really petrified about that. Oh, it has a name at the bottom. The na name is called Hades. So it's just interesting to me that Jesus brings his disciples to, to Caesarea Philippi where the rock of gods is and, and then mentions that, Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom and, oh, and also um, I'm going to build my church and uh, the gate of Hades will not overcome it. It's interesting to me that Jesus is using those kind of words and I want to suggest this to you that maybe Standing near one of the shrines, Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You, you, you are more than these idols and false gods. And Jesus said, you are Peter, and just like your name is Peter, and I called it you when you first came to me, when Andrew, your brother, brought you to me. You are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church on this rock, on this rock. Now, we don't have a cliff face, but we are living in a city. You're living in a city with every religion you can, you can possibly imagine. It's here. You may be working with people, living pe with people. It's all here in this amazing cosmopolitan city of London. And Jesus said, the gate of Hades will not stand up against the power of the church. And I'm just wondering this to you, that addict, could it not also have a symbolic meaning here that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be built upon the pagan rock? You see, you and I, where would we build our church? If there was a rock face with gods and goddesses and idols and false religions, where would we build our church? We might build our church over here across the road. Well, as far away as we can from that spiritualist church or whatever it is, false, or whatever that is. And we may have a, a midweek prayer meeting, and we may speak against it in the name of Jesus, down in the name of Jesus. We may be using every kind of, you know, tongues, and we're just, just really getting really, really passionate. We just bring you down in the name of Jesus, you know. Ugh. Yeah? And we can do that every week. And churches do that, just shouting at the world. And the devil kind of like just allows that to happen. And, but Jesus saying... No, I'm, where am I going to build my church? I think I'm going to build my church right on top. Right on top of culture. Right on top of every idol. and uh, I, uh, Right on top of every false religion. Right on top of everything that tries to stand itself. Because I'm telling you this. My name is a name above all names. I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. And there's nobody that is higher with greater authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I'm here to stay forever and ever and ever. Amen? And what are you worried about because the gate of Hades? <clears throat> what is that? Don't be afraid of anything. Because our mission is to go into culture, to take on evil, and to defeat it. How are we going to defeat ISIS, Boko Haram? How are we going to defeat the ideology that rises up? 
in our world today. Last week, a post on social media had a million hits in the Middle East within days, showing a 10-year-old girl having had her family killed by ISIS and the family of the 21 Egyptian Christians beheaded recently, forgiving ISIS. And that, 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 that statement of forgiveness spread around the Muslim world within hours. Because we fight not as the world fights. We come into culture as different people with a different thinking, with a different spirit. And we love you. Why, why mission? Why should a church be involved in... Why should a Christian... I hope you're getting why, but let me go on for a moment. You see, it's when I'm with the church planters in Asia that I understand what it means to flee the trappings of the world and the indulgent emphasis on material gain. And it's when I'm reading an email from a friend, as I did a few weeks ago, from a Pentecostal pastor in Niger, in Niger, in um, Niami in Niger, who, who writes that a few days ago his church had been burnt down, his house had been burnt down. It's when I read that that I begin to understand what it truly means to fight the good fight of the faith. It's when I'm sitting with a traumatized, raped woman within the DRC and, and she tells me that actually they've taken everything but nobody can take my eternity. Then I realize the importance of living our lives in the light of that. This is why Christians like you and me should have a hand stretched out to the world beyond because we are full when we are with the empty. We are better people when we are with the broken. We need to surround ourselves with the suffering because as we do, we see the power of God in the suffering. Where is God today? Oh, why does God allow suffering? It's a Western question. No one in the suffering world asks the question that the West are asking. You ask somebody who's suffering, where was God? I've tried it, I've done it. Embarrassingly so. And they look at me like I'm an idiot. Why are you asking that question? God was with me all the time. He sustained me. He's in this suffering. He won't let me go. And he's going to bring me through. We condition ourselves to the power of God to be with answers. I was a pastor for 23 years. Before I became a missions director, I had people coming to me all the time saying, Pastor, I've got a testimony, but it's not ready yet. It's like you're putting it in the microwave. Are you, are you cooking it? What are you doing? Well, no, what they're saying is, my healing's coming, but I'm, I, I don't want to hear testimonies of healing. I want to hear testimonies of people with cancer, but are not giving up. I want to hear about testimonies of people who have had trauma in their life, but are going forward and holding on to God, that the power of God is in my life, no matter what happens to my body, because that's where I learn to grow. This is the benefit for every Christian and every church to hold out a hand to the world. This is missions. And they are waiting for us, for our prayers, for us to give, for us to go. Please do something today before you leave, Katie. Let them know that life is worth something. They need to know it's not wasted, that before they pass from this life, that they have impacted us here in our castles of comfort. Let me finish with this quote. 
Jim Elliott was killed at the age of 20 years, 28 years of age on a mission field in Ecuador. Before he died, he wrote to his wife, Betty, Dearest Betty, I charge you in the name of our unfailing friend, do away with all waverings, bewilderment and wonder. You have bargained for a cross. Overcome anything in the confidence of your union with him so that contemplating trial, enduring persecution or loneliness, you may know the blessings of the joy set before. We are the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And what are sheep doing going into the gate? What is their purpose inside those courts? Is it to bleat melodies and enjoy the company of the flock? No. Those sheep were destined for the altar. Their pasture feeding had been for one purpose, to test them and fatten them for bloody sacrifice. Give him thanks then that you have been counted worthy of his altars. Enter into the work with praise. And I call on you today to lay your life down and be who you are in God. Where you are today with your family, your work colleagues, your neighborhood. Maybe God will never open the door for you to go to the ends of the earth, but actually you can go to the end of the street and think, well, I might as well be at the ends of the earth here. Whole pile of different cultures. We're asking you today to get behind us, to pray for us, to consider going on a missions trip, to prayerfully consider one pound a week. We reckon that's all we need. We, we're not funded in any other way apart from the, the goodwill of churches and individuals who say, look, we'll help you. And um, we reckon that if Elam members of our churches give a pound a week. We reckon that we can do it. Please come and talk to the friendly staff at the table. I really appreciate the opportunity. God bless you, Katie. Thank you.